Welcome to episode 31 of the Energy Balance Podcast, where we teach you how to live without constant hunger and cravings, fatigue, brain fog, poor sleep, and all sorts of other low energy symptoms by maximizing your cellular energy. I'm Jay Feldman. I'm a health coach and independent health researcher. And joining me again today is my good friend, Mike Fave. Mike and I have been studying health and nutrition together for a long time now, and Mike also draws on his experiences from working within the healthcare industry. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about blood pressure regulation, and more specifically, we're going to be talking about why low-sodium diets and drinking a lot of water are not the solution for those of you who have high blood pressure. We'll be talking about why and how salt actually opposes stress and how much salt somebody should be eating whether they have high blood pressure or don't, and why this number or the amount of salt that you'd be eating might be more than you think. We'll be talking about how the blood pressure medications work and why they don't actually solve the underlying problems in high blood pressure, and we'll be discussing the relationships between all of the different electrolytes, sodium, potassium, magnesium, and calcium, and their relationship with hypertension and blood pressure. And then we'll also discuss the idea that the heart may not actually function as a pump and how energy can actually be the driver of our circulation and oxygenation. And I'll be including some graphics uh, while we discuss this. So if you are watching on YouTube, you'll be able to see those. To check out the show notes for today's episode, head over to jfeldmanwellness.com slash podcast, where you can take a look at any of the studies or articles or anything else that we discussed throughout today's episode. And if you are dealing with hypertension, or you have other risk factors for heart disease, or you're looking to resolve other symptoms, whether that's chronic pain or weight gain or gut symptoms, maybe you do have constant cravings and hunger or fatigue or hormonal imbalances, or you're not sleeping well, head over to jfeldmanwellness.com energy, where you can sign up for a free energy balance mini course, where I'll walk you through some of the main things you want to do to optimize your cellular energy balance and maximize your cellular energy availability. And I'll also explain why this is really the key to resolving all of these symptoms and chronic health conditions. So in that free mini course, I'll talk through some of the basics as far as nutrition, stress, and exercise go in order to optimize uh, your health on that energetic level so that you can be free from all of those symptoms and conditions. So to sign up for that free energy balance mini course, head over to jfeldmanwellness.com energy. And with that, let's get started. So much like cholesterol, which we just talked about in high cholesterol, high blood pressure or hypertension is an extremely common symptom um, throughout the Western world and especially in the States. So in America, as much as one third of people over the age of 20 have hypertension, have high blood pressure and blood pressure medications, which there's several of them, but they're probably around the second most prescribed drugs in the United States when you look at them all together. And obviously, this is considered to be one of the primary contributors to heart disease, which is another massive problem, and over 650,000 Americans die every year from heart disease. So definitely a pretty major uh, pretty major problem if you want to look at it that way, or at least symptom that affects a lot of people. And along with this are not only the prescription of various medications, but also the prescription of low sodium, low salt diets, drinking a lot of water, which again is pretty pervasive and kind of 
it's another one of those things similar to like the heart healthy fats and avoiding cholesterol where it's considered to be fact and we all know how bad high sodium foods are and how we should be avoiding them and that the amount of sodium in foods is one of the main problems as far as you know the western diet and i'm saying that this is the kind of mainstream view that we don't really agree with and so we'll kind of discuss why that is and where the uh where the conventional view of blood pressure has gone wrong and and what's actually going on and how to how to fix it and whether whether it is related to heart disease or how it's related to heart disease okay so i guess the other thing i would add there is some of the medications used a lot of the ideas for high blood pressure is they just have too much fluid on board and that you just need to get rid of some of the fluid with diuretics and things like that and i think the general view is very skewed and very simplistic in that sense mm. where there's there's multiple factors involved, including electrolytes besides sodium, other other minerals like potassium and things like that, and then also energy issues. So I guess we'll we'll be digging into all of that today. Yeah, and as far as, far as the drugs go, uh, the it's interesting because as we get into them, we'll show how some of the drugs and their mechanisms actually suggest that a lot of the like the low sodium diets and drinking a lot of water actually is kind of directly opposing the mechanisms that the drugs work through. But the drug, exactly, the pathways are supposed to work on. So it's sort yeah. of like, it's contradictory to, some of the, the suggestions are contradictory and it's just sort of like, they're almost like myths at this point in as far as recommendations, just just drink a lot of water, drink a lot of water, mm-hmm. don't eat enough, don't eat a lot of salt. And in some circumstances, like eating a lot of packaged food, salts and things like that may not be a good idea. Number one for the amount of added salt there, but also for other components as well. But that isn't necessarily the main driver of what's going on physiologically. And the idea of just adding salt to food for taste and things like that being a bad idea, it just doesn't make a lot of physiologic sense. So I guess we'll start by getting into the general conventional views of blood pressure and the basics of blood pressure. Um, and then from there, we'll, we'll discuss more what the alternative use for that. So I guess with starting, we have the idea that, the, first of all, the, the, most, the, the largest idea is that the heart is a pump and that the heart pumps blood throughout the entirety of the, of the body. And this is a ex- very accepted idea, even, even amongst doctors, um, amongst nurses, amongst medical, medical professionals in general, is that the heart is actually pumping blood to all the tissues. And from a basic physics perspective, from a, from a, a basic perspective of what's physically possible, the heart is not capable of doing that. It's not capable of pumping that much fluid through that large of a surface area and distributing that much fluid across that surface area. It, it can't generate that, that much power, that much energy. Um, so there's, there's more to the, there's more going on to the system than just the heart pushing the blood through uh, through the arteries and then it's subsequently coming back through the veins because essentially the idea even within the modern medical community is that there's the as far as the blood being pumped most of the pumping occurs within the arterial vasculature and then in the venous vasculature a lot of what brings and the veins essentially bring the blood back to the heart and the arteries bring the blood away from the heart to the tissues um so with, what happens is the pressure is mainly in the arterial system and the, the modern medical or the traditional medical idea is that the heart is supplying that pressure within the arterial system with other factors as well, like the vessels constricting. Um, and then the veins, which is bringing the blood back from the tissues to the heart, 
is pressure is a lot lower and a lot of the the way that the blood is carried back through a valve system and through the muscles pumping that blood back to the heart. And so this is the general idea. Um, but even, even with that said, it still is not possible for the heart itself to push all of that fluid through su such a large surface area, such, or such a large amount of distance. Um, so that, that would be the first one there. And then I guess if you want to talk more about blood volume and then dilation and constriction of, vessels and then viscosity and things like that yeah and just to add about the heart being a pump i mean we'll discuss kind of this view and the alternative view of if the heart isn't just pumping the blood then what actually is going on and i would definitely say that there's nothing settled there i, I do think as you pointed out there are certain inconsistencies for sure with the idea that the heart is just pumping like the just the the main engine or the main driver of the blood throughout the entire circulatory system so we'll talk through that in a little detail i do think it's you know, a lot of what we will talk about is the case regardless of whether the heart is a pump or not. So I think there's some value in discussing it, but it's also not like the crux of the of the problem. I do think it is important, though, to some extent, because when we start getting in and when we start getting into things like talking about structured water and the importance of uh, maintaining a particular energy gradient and, a, and separation of different things, the energy system becomes important with that. So it does it does figure in. But regardless of whether or not the heart is specifically a pump or not, or whether it's a, a pump that pumps to the entirety of, of the body's arterial or, or, or yeah, arterial vasculature is there's the, it doesn't change the general principles of what to do to address some of the issues and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. And, and so we'll get to that. And so as far as some of those other uh, features, as far as blood pressure goes, I mean, blood pressure as a whole is basically has to do with the amount of blood that is leaving the heart and its force versus the resistance against that. And that's affected by the dilation or constriction of the blood vessels and how thick the blood is and how much blood volume is actually being pumped out and how much is kind of already there that the that the the heart is basically pumping against. Yeah. So how much is in the systemic circulation already. Mm -hmm. So what's already filling the vasculature versus what the heart is pushing out essentially. Right. And so generally like a higher blood volume will lead to a higher blood pressure, more constricted blood vessels will lead to a higher blood pressure and thicker blood will lead to a higher blood pressure. And there's, this is just kind of the, the general overview, just looking at like what is actually made up of blood pressure. But this doesn't mean that we want to have lower blood volume or always want more dilation or anything like that. So we'll get yeah. into that. It's definitely a delicate balance. And the, as, in regards to blood pressure, just because we're going into these more in-depth topics, blood pressure, at least as how we're talking about it here, is defined as the amount of pressure exerted against the arterial system. Mm -hmm. And it's not, so it, it's like how much pressure do you have inside the vessel pushing out? That's, that's what we're talking about for blood pressure. And that's what they're talking about in the general medical model. That's what they're assessing or what a nurse or doctor, whoever is assessing when they're taking your blood pressure with a cuff. Right, right, exactly. And the reason from this conventional view that blood pressure is so important is that the idea, the idea is that the higher blood pressure we have, the more damage is going to occur in the blood vessels. And then that damage leads to atherosclerosis, plaque buildup, and eventually heart disease, which, I mean, there's some amount of truth to that, but we'll get into it. But, but anyway, so that's kind of why the, there's this fear around high blood pressure. 
as a symptom. And from this conventional idea, some of, I mean, there's not really a lot that's talked about as far as what really leads to the blood pressure. On one hand, they will talk about having too much salt, a higher salt diet or a higher sodium diet and not drinking enough water as basically we'll talk about why this isn't the case, but the idea is kind of that you take in more salt, you have more blood volume because of that and that this leads to an increased blood pressure and that this leads to uh, this leads to this damage to the vasculature. And then there's a couple other factors that they'll talk about as far as kidney disease or dysfunction and which has to do with, again, this relationship with sodium and making sure that there's the right amount in the blood. And there are some other factors as well, just talking about atherosclerosis, where if you already have damage to the arteries, it is acknowledged that then they don't have the same ability to dilate or contract. And so that can also contribute to high blood pressure. So considering that, this is where the medications come from, the couple that you mentioned. So for one, diuretics, what they basically do is they reduce the blood volume and they do this at a cost and we can get into that. But the idea here is, for example, if you have too high of a sodium diet, the idea is that you have too high of blood volume, too high of blood pressure. And so if you just reduce the blood volume, you have less blood pressure and problem solved. So that's where you have medications like the diuretics. And then there are other ones as well that inhibit various parts of what's called the RAS system. And this which is the renin-aldosterone-angiotensin system and renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. And this is basically a stress system that we'll dig into, but it's a stress system that increases blood pressure. And so there are various, there are, it's like kind of this extensive pathway of a network of, of uh, chemical signals that's going on. But the, but yeah, so some of the medications will also be involved in slowing uh, or stopping that process, stopping the activity of the rest. Inhibiting system. different steps of the process directly. Right. So blocking different areas of the steps so mm-hmm. that they can't have their desired effect. But all the, all the steps, the basic idea of the RAS system is to increase blood volume and increase uh, constriction of the vasculature to raise mm-hmm. pressure to allow for perfusion to continue to happen to the different organs and tissues and wherever the perfusion needs to be. So that it, it, what basically happens is the different drugs just inhibit one portion of the system, whether it's vasoconstriction or whether some of the diuretics inhibit some another portion of the system, whether it's retaining excess fluids and things like that. Um, and that's basically how it works. So it just like antagonizes this adaptive system. But again, and what we'll get to is the question is why is the system activated in the first place? Mm-hmm. And that's somewhere some of the paradoxical information about increasing or decrease increasing water intake and decreasing sodium intake and and things like that comes from yeah exactly so let's talk about that like what the this increased blood pressure as an adaptive response and this kind of adaptive system so another aspect of blood pressure that's really important is not just what it is but how why it functions why this is such a tightly regulated system why we can't have too low of blood pressure or what could happen if we have too high of blood pressure and basically if, if our blood pressure drops too low we lose the ability to circulate nutrients essentially through the blood and the that leads to less nutrient pickup by the cells you have basically less circulation and it's not directly tied with blood flow but we'll we'll kind of talk about that but but so basically when we need more circulation when we need more nutrients in certain parts of our bodies 
that's going to activate stress systems that will increase our blood pressure as an adaptive response. So yeah, I would say that those are kind of the, the main things that will lead to an increase in blood pressure through this RAS system. You have general stress, which is essentially another way of saying a lack of energy and, and therefore a lack of nutrients, more or less. Uh, but so you have general stress, which could be due to a lack of nutrients, but either way, a lack of nutrients will also cause it. Um, a lack of oxygenation will be another one. And then also just a lack of circulation. Well, all of those things will lead to high blood pressure or like a, an adaptive high blood pressure response. The other thing to point out here is that the system progressively uh, exacerbates itself over time. Because mm-hmm. as, as the system relies on these adaptive pathways and it, because it, it, essentially, and I guess at this point, we might as well get into more of the nitty gritty of some of the pathways. But for example, with some of the medications like a diuretic, like something like your general Lasix or corosamide, what it essentially does is it causes you to retain, um, retain potassium and excrete sodium. Um, and then the, the water will follow the sodium. And essentially what happens is then you start getting rid of the sodium within your body. You start getting uh, basically uh, eliminating an elect- a very important electrolyte from the body. Um, and this can cause all types, some, some of the major side effects of this drug are electrolyte abnormalities because there's a delicate balance between sodium, between potassium. And so over time, using the drugs, you deplete. But with the system itself, when it relies on a hormone of a name called aldosterone, and within the system, aldosterone causes a, a release of potassium and an increased uh, absorption of sodium and then water as well. So you start to waste potassium. So all the elements to fix the system and then the system itself wastes different components, different electrolytes. And then over time, the system has an, like some of the components of the system have an inflammatory effect. Angiotensin II, which is part of the RAS system, has a direct inflammatory effect over time if, if elevated chronically. And the same thing with aldosterone as well. So basically over time when the system is chronically activated, you start to get electrolyte abnormalities on the cellular level as well as in general. And then you also get inflammatory processes that can occur in the vasculature, which include plaques, which include fibrosis, which include a loss of the vasculature's ability to to comply or essentially contract or relax depending on what's needed um, or what context they're in. And, and so over time, it just, it continues to get worse on itself unless, unless you basically cut and you, you, you cut the, the pathway from happening or you, you stop the, pro, the pathway from progressing and that by fixing the underlying problems, which include um, fixing the electrolyte problems and allowing for perfusion to tissues and allowing, having optimal energy metabolism and things like that. So it'll just prog- progressively get worse and you can use different drugs, diuretics, or some of the medications to address the problem, but they also come at their own cost because when they are inhibiting different parts of the pathway, they're adjusting other parts of the body as well. It's not just one specific factor occurring at that one point and it just stops the problem. And you, you'll see this with a lot, you'll see this with, with certain patients after long-term use of blood pressure medications, they can cause damage to their kidneys and some patients might have to go on dialysis. And same thing with di- use of diuretics and things like that. Um, so it's important to really address the underlying problem instead of just managing the symptom as, as it goes. And the question is, why is the blood pressure elevated in the beginning? And for a lot of reasons, for the most basic underlying reason as to why a blood pressure would be elevated in general would probably be a lack of perfusion to a certain tissue 
or it could be a, uh, some type of electrolyte abnormality over time or uh, some type of energy defect to some extent because the entire process of maintaining blood pressure and whatnot is dependent upon energy metabolism of the different cells and so, and it also which controls the electrolyte balance of the cell and then that adjusts what goes on within the bloodstream and what and what goes on in the regulatory and hormonal factors so it's an entire inter, it's an entirely interconnected synergistic system that works beautifully when it's supplied appropriately and it's working well but when you start breaking the system down and you try to address different pieces by themselves in a reductionistic manner, you just create further problems down the line. You don't solve the underlying issue. And then the system continues to degrade on itself. It just degrades at a slower pace. And in some cases, it may not even degrade at a slower pace. It may just continue to get worse no matter what the specific reductionistic intervention is. So you have to really determine what the entire picture is, what's going on in the cellular level, what's going on in the vascular level. And, and then, you know, and those things are adjusted by what's going on on the dietary level and on the lifestyle level. Yeah. And, and circling back to some of the specific mechanisms you were talking about, as far as the diuretics go, their effects, you know, they basically act as the opposite of aldosterone uh, leading to the excretion of sodium and holding on to potassium and calcium. And we had, so we had an episode where we talked about water and, and salt and how that affects blood pressure and, and, partially, you know, parts of this RAS system and how too little salt and too much water can increase aldosterone. So I'll link to that episode and a couple of articles there too. Uh, but I, I think it's worth digging, like at least kind of giving a brief overview because that's one of the main feature, one of the main things that will cause uh, an adaptive rate uh, increase in blood pressure. And it's also one of the main recommendations is eat less salt and drink less water, eat less salt and drink more water. So yeah. Just to explain very briefly what happens there is when when we eat too little salt or we drink too much water, we have a lack of salt in the blood, which typically leads to lower blood volume because uh, you know, like we'll know colloquially that salt and water kind of go together. Salt attracts water sort of situation. And, and, and that so, happens in the body as well. Exactly. I mean, we know it colloquially, but that that actually happens in the body as well, where the water will tend to follow sodium and that's why there's this big focus on salt in the diet and things like that right yeah and so the conventional view is if you have a lot of sodium that'll increase the blood volume and increase blood pressure and so I, as the alternative if you have very low amount of sodium or the equivalent is a high amount of water that would immediately like in, in the short term lower blood volume and then what happens is this is activates the rest system because if we have too little blood volume as you were saying, this reduces the perfusion to various tissues. It reduces circulation. It reduces blood flow. We don't have enough blood available to transport all the nutrients. Very specifically to the kidney, because the kidney right. is very, very regulator. sensitive. Exactly. The kidney is extremely sensitive to changes in, in blood flow. And so any small amounts of changes in blood flow to the kidney will raise RAS system activity. And so the kid, and within the RAS system, you, you, you might, you go ahead, go ahead, explain it. Sure. Yeah. So, uh, no, but it's important to point out the the importance of, of the kidney here. And so that is where a lot of this is going on. And so when you do have too little blood flow to, to the kidney, in this case, due to eating too little salt or drinking too much water, you'll inc you'll activate this rest system. And what the rest system will do in this case, it'll end up with aldosterone production. And for, I mean, first you have renin release from the kidneys and the, the whole angiotensin system, but aldosterone is, is a little farther down the line. But once you get to that point, 
the kidneys will start to retain sodium. So you've eaten too little salt, and normally the kidneys are kind of you know, releasing salt, excreting salt into your urine. And so when you're eating too little salt, they'll actually start to hold on to that salt. So that way your blood volume doesn't dip too low because that's a huge problem. Too little blood flow, too little circulation is a huge problem. So the kidneys under the, uh, the stimulation from aldosterone will cause your body to hold on to salt to raise the blood volume back up. And in its place, it'll start to excrete potassium and magnesium. And that becomes a huge problem because deficiencies in potassium and magnesium are already really common. And then to be losing more through this mechanism is a really good way to create deficiency, which causes all sorts of issues that we'll talk about because those are main electrolytes and the, the electrolyte balance is really important when we're talking about blood pressure and vascular health. And even in cellular health, because yeah. potassium and magnesium are some of the main intracellular electrolytes and the, the having those electrolytes intracellularly is important for energy metabolism and important for cellular structure and important for cell metabolism and function in general. So when you long-term start depleting these different things, it has chronic effects on the cellular level as well. So that's why it's important to not just, okay, so we're just, we our, our blood pressure is too high. Okay, just don't drink water and stop eating as much salt. And mm-hmm. then when you have this adaptive system elevate over time, then you start depleting things in another direction. And, and, it's, and you just, it doesn't solve the problem. Yeah, exa- yeah, exactly. It causes things to get a lot worse in the long term. And, and so that's basically what happens here is in the short term, you've got this backup system, this adaptive system. It comes at the cost of losing potassium and magnesium and you end up with okay blood pressure. What happens chronically is that you, have, you end up with overactivity of this system. You end up with dysfunction for all sorts of other reasons that we'll talk about. And you end up continuing to retain sodium with this RAS system and this increase in aldosterone. And aldosterone causes all sorts of other effects. It causes our cells to swell up, which a lack of potassium and magnesium will as well, which inhibits their ability to produce energy and function properly. It inhibits the vasculature's ability to vasodilate. So you end up with a lot of vasoconstriction as well, which will happen due to either a lack of potassium and magnesium or aldosterone. Also from the RAS system as well, the other components of the RAS system, including angiotensin 2, have a direct vasoconstriction effect and have a direct effect on the sympathetic nervous system. And as we talked about in a previous podcast, the sympathetic nervous system is an adaptive system that for stressful situations. So it also, you're also elevating the sympathetic nervous system over time as well. And chronically, that's not a good thing. All of these systems are, were made for, for example, the aldosterone system or the RAS system is if you, don't have, if you have an acute shortage of sodium, say for a day or two, you're still able to function and maintain your blood pressure. It's not supposed to be years-long deficits and things like that. And the same, and the same thing with, with, the, with the sympathetic nervous system. It's supposed to be for an acute response it's supposed to be for a day or or for in the case of fight or flight for that instance it's not supposed to be a chronically activated consistently activated system that runs for years and years and years because again as we're pointing out it depletes the overall the overall structure on the cellular level and on a macro level of the body yeah and this is to an extent acknowledged this is kind of what we were talking about earlier acknowledged by the mainstream because the medications that are often used will which we kind of mentioned about or mentioned but there's the ace inhibitors beta blockers angiotensin receptor blockers those all what's that and the, then the diuretics and the diuretics so spironolactone is an aldosterone antagonist directly mm. that's 
So, and then some of the other diuretics work specifically on the kidney, like uh, Lasix, which is furosemide, and then Bumex, uh, I forget. And then there's other, there's thiazide diuretics, hydrochlorothiazide. So those all work directly on the kidney. But then the other drugs that you mentioned work specifically in antagonizing this RAS system. You can go into them. I'll, yeah. I'll leave you that. Sure. Well, and, and so as you mentioned, there's some of those diuretics do also oppose parts of this RAS system like aldosterone. And so it's acknowledged by, at least to an extent in the conventional wisdom, that an overactivity of this RAS system is responsible, at least in part, for elevating blood pressure. And so when it comes to salt and water, eating too little salt and having too much water is a really good way to activate the stress system, this RAS system. And, and so and again, I'll link to that other episode so that, you know, to dig into that into more detail. But as far as that goes, we don't want to be reducing salt intake too much or increasing water too much because it will, uh, it will activate this rest system, which is responsible, one of the primary mediators of high blood pressure. Yeah. So in talking about sodium and, and water or, and why we don't want to eat too much, too little sodium and why we don't want to drink too much water. Uh, the recommendations as far as sodium go are often, you know, under 2000 milligrams or under 2300 milligrams or under 2500 milligrams. But a lot of the research does not support that and actually supports that more that in the range of eating sodium in the range of 4000 to 6000 milligrams, which is at least twice of what they're recommending. I mean, sometimes they'll recommend as low as like 1700 or lower. And normally it's, it's lower is better. There's no like limit to it. Uh, kind of like cholesterol, but the research suggests that actually having eating sodium in the ranges of 4,000 to 6,000 milligrams per day is associated with the lowest risk of heart disease, the lowest risk of mortality overall, the lowest risk, or uh, sorry, the lowest risk of uh, mortality from heart attacks, the lowest risk of, of strokes, the lowest risk of heart failure. So in all of these, especially in this, you know, population that is susceptible to heart disease, eating less salt does not sound like the, uh, the best option and and makes sense this makes sense considering that eating too little salt will directly activate these systems that lead to things like high blood pressure and excessive chronic stress over time and, and problems over time like that said, in, like a lack of potassium and magnesium direct to you know cell swelling and a lack of energy production and eventually calcification and atherosclerosis and stuff which is all part of that same process with that said, though, it's important. That doesn't mean that we're going to, like, slam grams and grams of salt a day. It's, it's more of, like, I would say the easiest way to go about it would be to salt, to taste. And a lot of people will notice that when they're under stress, they crave salty things, and that's because this particular pathway is activated part, in relation to aldosterone and general sympathetic nervous system activation um, and general, um, general adrenal gland activation can lead to increases in aldosterone production and, uh, and a, a basically a desire for salt, uh, a taste for salt, and things like that. So it is, salt has a generally protective effect. Obviously, everything has a, has a balance to it. There's a, there, the question is how much salt? And it's not, the, the research, at least according to some of the articles that we're referencing here, is showing, what was it, between four and six grams a day? And not not as low as two grams a day. I think sometimes it's one point five grams, depending on what what the circumstances for the patient. And and again, this is this may be different in situations like uh like a severe chronic kidney disease, like if you're in stage four or something like that, or you have like severe heart failure and you're taking a lot of um 
very strong diuretics. Mm-hmm. Those situations consult with your doctor um, because I, I, we're not addressing the specific interactions here, the, the specific interactions to your context here with those medications and what your electrolyte intake is and things like that. And I don't want to see anybody have any complications from there. This is just a general overview of what the mechanisms are, why we disagree with them and what are alternative mechanisms that make sense. And then um, what are some of the current understandings and within the traditional medical model and why they don't, why they don't make sense from a physiologic perspective. So it's important for your individual context to sort of address that with your doctor and not just try to eat four to six grams of salt and whatever else you're going to do if you have chronic kidney disease and the later stages are extreme heart failure or things like that. Yeah. And to clarify also uh, that 46 grams is for sodium, not salt. So uh, sodium is about 40%, like within salt, which is sodium chloride, sodium is about 40% of that. So uh, 46 grams of sodium would be more like what, 10 to 10 to 14 grams of salt. Yeah, so it would be between that four to six grams of sodium would be between 10 and 15 grams of salt. So about two to three teaspoons of salt per day, which you had mentioned salting to taste, which is the best. I mean, we have very, very tightly regulated systems. And we talked about this in that water and salt podcast and in the articles I'll link to as well. So we have very tightly regulated systems that tell us when we have enough water, when we have enough salt, when we don't. And so if we listen to our our, uh, sense of thirst, and how much of a like how much of a desire we have for salty foods, we should be fine there. And I know you were you had mentioned also that we don't want to be having excessive amounts of salt either. And I think that that's most often a problem. If it's a problem, is when we're not getting enough of the other minerals like potassium and magnesium and calcium. And often in a potassium deficient diet, uh, the same amount of salt will cause might cause issues. But if you have enough potassium more salt is better. So I think that that might be partially at least responsible for that upper end of six grams of sodium is just on average, people aren't getting enough of those other minerals in their diet. So that might even be a higher range as well. If we account for the, like if somebody is eating well and getting enough of those other electrolytes. Yeah. Which is uh, important to point out that having enough of the other electrolytes is vitally important to the system. It's not all about salt. A lot of the, the, the mainstream model has focused on salt. And that's why, to a large extent, it's focused on salt. They do talk in the, the DASH diet, which is, I don't know, dietary interventions or something to stop hypertension, something along those lines. It's like a, a generally accepted mainstream uh, diet that is promoted for hypertension. It's called the DASH diet. And DASH mm-hmm. is an acronym, what I, something along the lines of what I just mentioned. And uh, essentially, they talk about increasing potassium and, and significantly lowering sodium in the diet. And so besides that, the main focus, unless you have chronic kidney disease, and then they start talking about phosphate and calcium and magnesium, because once your kidneys don't function, you have a ton of electrolyte issues because your kidneys are the main regulators of that. But for people who aren't aren't that far down the line with their diseases or who are people who just want to generally be healthy or maintain their health or who are, have some minor issues and want to get back to get back to their health, making sure that you have enough sodium on board, but also enough potassium, magnesium, calcium is important to the, to multiple systems, including the RAS system, but also including, um, the parathyroid hormone system, um, and 
multiple multiple systems across the board but electrolytes are extremely important and those things have to be obtained from the diet it's and if you don't and it, this goes back to the same thing that we've talked about in other podcasts if you don't obtain the necessary components the nutrients and that includes macronutrients and micronutrients that includes proteins fats carbs minerals vitamins if you don't obtain the necessary amounts of those substances for a for a majority of those substances, the body will pull from its own stores and tissues in order to provide those substances to allow for the right now metabolic processes to happen. Because basically, it, it's, a, it's an intelligent system, and the system is designed to allow for functioning right now. Because if we don't live right now, or we're not functioning right now, there is not going to be later. Mm-hmm. But chronically, if the system is chronically elevated, it depletes those stores. And so the only way to really get these stores or, or to maintain your stores and to not even dip into them is to avoid, number one, being low in the dietary sensor and an intake, and number two, not continually tap the systems to pull the nutrients, whether macro, micro, minerals, vitamins, whatever it is, from those stores. So you want to lessen the usage of them and also provide adequate amounts that you can build up those stores. And that means eating a diet that has adequate amounts of potassium and eating a diet that has adequate amounts of sodium and magnesium and calcium and phosphorus and everything that's necessary for general function and, and ample amounts. And so that becomes vitally important for all functions on a cellular level and on a macro level. And so these mechanisms that we're talking about are essentially just the systems that are created to maintain function in the absence of adequate supplies of these of these nutrients or in circumstances where there's not enough nutrient immediately available to meet the demand. Yeah. And where you're, you know, in that stress situation where you're making up for something that is not immediately available, you talked about salt being very important in opposing stress in general. And just to clarify that or expand on that a little bit is, is that this, this rest system, this rest stress system that we discussed retain sodium in order to increase blood pressure and circulation and so by providing that sodium from our diet we can basically prevent that stress from being necessary we basically have the benefit without the cost and you know we talked about some of those costs as potassium and magnesium loss also the effects of aldosterone and angiotensin which also involves higher nitric oxide there's a ton of factors there but um, it's a much better option to not go down that stress pathway, both in the chronic state and even in the acute states. If it, if you have an alternative that doesn't require stress, that's normally the best option. If you don't have to rely on the adaptive pathways, then why would you? Then why do it? If you can provide yourself with adequate sodium in your diet and the other electrolytes that we mentioned, potassium, magnesium, calcium, on a regular basis, so that you don't have to rely on adaptive hormones like aldosterone or like parathyroid hormone, which has an adaptive effect with calcium, then why would you not just supply those in the diet so you don't have to work, so you don't have to pull them from your tissues with these other hormones? It yeah. just, it, it makes the most sense to just supply it generally in the diet. And this is why the, and this is why the diet and nutrition come down as the center focus and, and lifestyle as well in, and avoiding a lot of these problems because it, it is as simple as making sure you're having enough of these substances and then also not basically pulling from these from the stores of these substances so to add on to what's going on in that stress state or why we want to be avoiding 
that stress. It's beyond the loss of these minerals or nutrients from our tissues. You know, in the case of, of the rest system, for example, we're not actually necessarily pulling sodium from our tissues. We're just not excreting it like we normally would, but there's always a cost when it comes to that stress side. So uh, sometimes that cost is tangible nutrient wise. You're pulling calcium from the bones, for example, uh, or you're pulling protein from the muscles. Sometimes it results in things like the loss of potassium and magnesium when we're holding on to sodium. And other times as well, it's also just acting as any sort of stress is acting as a signal that we're not in a great environment. And that is going to come at a cost itself because it it's none of these adaptations are just one off. They all we're constantly adapting in a way that is in basically we're constantly adapting to our environment. And the more that we're adapting to a harmful environment, the more we're going to depress all of our higher level functions, all of the things that require more energy and a higher metabolism in order to um, in order to conserve energy and fuel. So beyond some of those more tangible things that are costs there, any stress signal comes at, at a cost. And that doesn't mean that we should always avoid stress. Stress in the physiological sense is unavoidable and that's okay. We've talked about that extensively before, so I'll link to those episodes, but uh, it still means that it comes at a cost. Well, it's stress that you can't adapt to or stress that you can't, you can't, you stress that you can't meet with your current energetic, I guess, uh, resources. Cause at a certain, with your current, if you, in a certain situation, de- depending on whether, I guess this is where Cellier's idea, mm-hmm. Hans Cellier's idea comes with as distress versus you stress. And I guess the main differentiating factor in the circumstance, because you, the only time you don't have stress is when you're dead. Um, from a physiologic perspective, at least as Hans defined it. And, and so you have the idea of you stress and distress and then you stress is basically what you have the energetic demands to meet. And then distress is essentially you have to rely on these adaptive hormones to meet that, to meet the demands of that stress. So the idea to some extent is to not dip into relying on those adaptive hormones. And a lot of that, it comes to the, it comes at the extent of, are you, do you have, enough resources and where you're getting your resources from and the idea of resource management is essentially what's going into the system and what's what uh what is being applied to the system and so the idea would to be not have the had not have an overarching um application or demand on the system and have an adequate supply and that's essentially what we're getting at yeah and i i don't really like the use stress and distress terminology and have some disagreements with hans about those and he he had some ideas about adaptation energy being a limited resource which is yeah i didn't like that either (laughs) yeah so and and so i've i've written extensively about this in a couple of long articles talking about hormesis we've talked about it a little bit i'll link to those articles and episodes because it's a it's a huge other conversation but yeah i think but i think for general explanation's sake the idea just the idea of having you envision a system and then you have demands on the system and then you have resources in the system. And obviously to have the system function appropriately, you would want to have an adequate resource available in the system without a extreme demand on the system. Right. And so that demand would be a stressor, what we would consider a stressor. And if we don't have enough resources to handle that stressor, at least immediate resources, then it causes stress, which leads to this whole backup system that allows us to meet the demands, but it comes at a cost. Exactly. And so that stress we want to avoid as much as possible. There are circumstances where very something can be stressful and the benefits can outweigh that stress, 
but the stress itself is always harmful, even if it, there are other benefits that might be attributed to other factors of other factors of a stressor. So exercise is an example. That's a stressor. It can cause stress, but there are other benefits that outweigh the stress. But it is it's important to note that it's not the stress itself that's beneficial. Exactly. And I think it's important to note that the body is set up to deal with acute stressors. But in a lot of our current environment, what we're seeing with people's degenerative diseases and chronic diseases is accumulations of chronic stressors over, of acute stressors over time to form chronic stressors. So you have an, an acute stress being consistently happening and the, you're just having a stressful signal consistently, consistently, consistently. And uh, essentially over time, it just wears out the different pathways and, uh, and essentially the body as those pathways, it doesn't wear out the pathways, the pathways continually occur and then the, they, they tax the body as they're continually occurring. The body was not set up to maintain these pathways over such an, ex an extended period of time and to continually hit the pathway, hit the pathway, hit the pathway. You can't continually retain sodium and water and excrete potassium, excrete potassium, excrete potassium and think that the system is going to work well over time. I mean, it depends on what we mean by well. I mean, I do think that our bodies are meant to deal with that stress. It's just the, we don't like the results of that stress. Those, the results are dysfunction, lowered metabolism, lowered energy for brain function, eventually like, yes, disease and things, but that's because we're choosing to allocate resources in certain areas. So I would say that, I, and the reason why I'm clarifying is, is some people will say, oh, our bodies are just dumb and they don't know how to respond properly. And that's why we have to fix it with medications. But I think that instead no, I would I, argue I that, think, yeah, yeah, yeah the, the response is intelligent. We just don't like the cost to it. Well, yeah, because again, the idea is that we own the body and as far as a, a perspective, I guess, if we were going to personify the body, we only have right now. If we don't have right now, then we definitely don't have later. So the idea within these mechanisms is to allow us to function in our currently and to allow us to keep functioning because it, it, as far as the idea of we're going to, if you don't survive right now, you can't like, if you're not going to survive right now, how can you worry about later? That's always priority one. Yeah. Exactly. So the main focus is surviving right now. And a lot of systems are set up for that, but a continual pathway, continually using those pathways causes issues, whether it's blood sugar with cortisol and glucagon and growth hormone and whatever else, or whether it's electrolyte balance with aldosterone in the RAS cascade um, and sympathetic nervous system and, and anything in those pathways. There's other pathways as well that get taxed. It, it's the same ideas. They, they all apply the, the general mechanism behind the ideas apply the general idea of energy metabolism and resources and demands in the system apply. It's just, they, they're just in, we're just basically categorizing them and breaking them down into different terminology, but the general ideas underlying them are all pretty similar. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah, it's, it's a very, it's definitely a very interwoven interconnected system that all acts together very intelligently. So the, the whole talk about stress and whether, you know, we have enough energy to deal with certain demands and things it does is also directly relevant, not only in, in the rest system, but to the, to our general circulatory system. And this is what you were talking about earlier, as far as whether the heart is a pump. And so rather than this idea that the heart provides all of the force to push all of the blood throughout our entire circulation, which is, as you said, from just the physics of it doesn't make sense. It, it just is not, it doesn't play out. It doesn't, 
it doesn't seem to uh it doesn't make mathematical sense or physical it doesn't shoot the it doesn't shoot water or i guess your blood through all your vasculature as particularly in the arterial system and allow it to go to the different tissues there's much more involved than just the heart just contracting hard enough to do that it's not how it works right yeah i think i know i don't remember exactly what it is but it's like all the vasculature spread out would equal a football field or a basketball court or something yeah something like that yeah if you were to consider the size of our heart and how much heart or how much blood it could pump it could not pump out throughout the entire surface area especially with the resistance to it blood pressure all of that so instead there's this alternative view where what the heart is doing is it's helping to charge the blood in a certain way based on the design of the of the heart the shape of it it creates a, a charge by kind of swirling the water the it creates a vort- it creates vortex, a vortex yes. in the ventricle basically the way the ventricle contracts is that it forces the water to spin and when the, when you spin the water it's been found that it creates a charge within the water and then that charge you, you can go into the charge basically affects how the water organizes itself right and so when you have this water of a certain charge that is then going through the vasculature, which is kind of the whole point. The whole idea is that by the time the blood comes back to the to the heart, it's mostly lost that charge, and so it's kind of recharging it. And then when it's going into the vasculature, the the thought process here is that there's basically the equivalent of one of the like a what is a monorail, like the magnetic uh, exactly. trains, where you have opposing charges that allow for the movement through the in this case through the tube. So that would be the vasculature. So the cells lining the blood vessels are producing energy and that energy has a charge associated with it and that charge is opposite from the charge in the blood uh the yeah the charge of the blood and so you have kind of these opposing forces that lead or is it attracting forces it's opposite no, so it's it's attract- oppo- it, they're 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 opposing forces okay so it's so you essentially you have the the water, when it's charged and when it's spun and it gets the charge, it stacks up in what's called the easy layer or the exclusion zone. Because basically what happens is the water arranges itself in a way that it, I think it, it forms these, this matrix with two hyd- with the hydrogens and the oxygen. Um, and then it's, th- I, it's three hydrogens and one oxygen. Yeah, exactly. And then one, and then one hydrogen is sort of like pushed out and that, at that point it's a proton because it's it's an ion so it has lost an electron from its one of its from its valence shell which is i know we're getting a little bit in the weeds here and in a sense so basically what happens is the water arranges itself so that it stacks part of it stacks up against against the wall and then it forces the a positively charged molecule into the center and so you have this this charge separation and so it's sort of like anything that's flow that now flows through the center of the lumen of the vessel, which is basically lined by this structured water. It has uh, a charge gradient. So there's two different charges. So it allows it to flow through sort of like um, how in the matrix they had those huge vehicles that were that ran on like magnets all around them. Mm-hmm. And it basically like flowed through the whatever the canals were in the matrix. Um by repelling the the mag- the metal surfaces that it was surrounded by, um, it's just basically that's that's the rough idea of what's going on in the vasculature. And so the heart, so that already has the blood the blood vessels themselves already are providing a circulation, especially in the arterial system. They're already providing a, a movement just by having these opposing charges. 
And then the heart is basically adjusting the charge. And then it's also adjusting the flow by I, acting to some capacity like a hydraulic ram. Um, and so basically what happens is the, the fluid flows into one chamber of the heart. Mm. And then as it builds up, it pushes it and it pushes it through into the next chamber. And so that's like a stop. But every time it comes through, it pushes it a little bit more. So the system sort of like keeps itself going with the charge and with the hydraulic ram function of the heart. And as far as the lumen or the vasculature itself, what's important about that is that the vasculature is a collagen. It's a protein structure. The inside is lined with endothelial cells, but it also has a lot of college. It has a lot of collagen structure and that collagen structure also has a charge itself because of the interaction with the different proteins and then the different sulfur groups. And that helps uh, align or uh, basically interact with the exclusion zone water to have everything function the appropriate way. So you need to have the heart functioning appropriately and creating a vortex within the vascular system to charge the water. And then the vasculature itself, the tube that the water is flowing through structure has to be maintained by having a appropriate collagen network and appropriate sulfur groups and everything else within that collagen network to interact with the water the right way. So if you damage the collagen bed and the endothelial layer, the innermost layer of the vasculature, then you affect the ability of the water to form that exclusion zone. And so there's, there's, we're talking about multiple hypotheses here. I just want to point that out. So there's, we're talking about the idea of easy water. We're talking about the idea of the heart be charging the water but then the other thing as far as maintaining vascular structure that this was part of linus paulings who was a, a, a nobel prize winning chemist um basically what what he was saying with with taking large doses of vitamin c particularly for heart disease is that the vitamin c is a cofactor for the enzyme that produces collagen networks uh so if you don't have enough vitamin c on board you you basically get a breakdown in that collagen network and then you you get what that's what's called scurvy and so his idea was that uh, that heart disease was essentially long term slowly progressing scurvy and when you and this ties in directly with the easy water because when you destroy that collagen network of the vasculature the water doesn't associate properly within that vasculature and it impedes flow but it also allows components within that vasculature to directly interact with the endothelial wall. And particularly in high pressure areas, like the, the arteries around the heart, the coronary arteries, and then the aorta and places like that. And so if you combine that, if you combine this destruction of the collagen network and the damaging of the, the easy water matrix with a high consumption, this is another theory on, um, involved, which is oxidized uh, polyunsaturated fatty acids, with a high consumption of polyunsaturated fatty acids, particularly the omega-6, that's what's being shown in the research currently. We'll see what comes out going forward with the omega-3s, or Jay can talk more specifically about the omega-3s. Um, you get an oxidation of these fatty acids, and then they damage directly the vascular wall, and the, the immune cells pick up these oxidized polyunsaturated fatty acids because of how damaging they are, and they pull them inside the vascular wall, vascular wall itself into the muscular layer so that the oxidized fatty acids aren't in the lumen and aren't interacting with the endothelial layer, which is the innermost layer that's directly involved with the easy water because it, the polyunsaturated fatty acids damage those endothelial cells at certain concentrations. So the immune cells basically come and they're like, they're like scavengers 
or they're like tow trucks picking up cars parked in the wrong places, like damaged cars. And then they bring them in and then they basically just sit there with them because there's nothing they can do. And they keep engulfing and engulfing and eventually they die. And then you start forming plaques within the interior of the vascular wall. So the plaque is not within the vascular, within the lumen of the vasculature or the inner, basically the part where there is no vas, like there, the, I guess it's the not on the innermost layer. It's, it's inside, it, inside the wall. Exactly. So the plaque is inside the wall. <clears throat> and what happens is over time, the vessel actually expands, but the inside lumen stays the same. So the vessel expands out. And it's only once you get something like 60% occlusion or 60%, I think it's 60% occlusion where the vessel itself has, uh, has adjusted its size by 60% that the lumen actually starts to change size. So the, the body has a, a decent amount of give or damage for there. It's not good to have that before you start losing uh, blood flow through those vessels. So there's multiple hypotheses there. You'll probably clear up some of the things because I went went uh, decently in depth, but there's multiple processes going on. And all of those things, when you start having that damage over time and you start having the, the formation of these plaques and you start interrupting the easy water, then you start affecting the ability of the vessels to contract and to um, dilate to allow for blood flow. And then you have to start relying and the adaptive processes and adaptive processes are involved in this damage, and then they also uh, have to upregulate over time to basically allow the vessels to function because of that damage. Yeah, there's a lot there. I want to make a clarification too, just real quick about hypotheses and theories, where you kind of made those disclaimers a few times, but I also want to make the clarification that the conventional view are is also made up of hypotheses and like ideas none of that is proven it's considered to be fact by often by the people talking about it they consider it that way but really we should you know we should be looking at those theories in the same way that we're considering these which is that nothing is proven these are this is just what makes the most sense and is supported by research and and physics and biochemistry and physiology so i just want to make that clarification that it's not like we're just talking about hypotheticals here this is i think the closest to reality of course we that might we be know wrong. right now yeah yeah and of course that might be wrong just like what anybody else says might be wrong but it's not like we're saying all their stuff is fact and here's just this cool idea like this is this is supported to an extent to a de- you know considerably and there's a lot of support or evidence against a lot of the conventional views so i just want to want to make sure that there's there's not like a this idea here that we're just talking hypotheticals well i think these are the these are the the theories that are currently situated within the research that have yet to be adopted in the right. mainstream because it doesn't support the current practices that are going on. And so it's going to be a couple years, maybe a couple decades ever. <laughs> before, before I think these theories are going to gain more traction in a mainstream model and, and until they, because basically right now the current model with which we're functioning for a decent amount of the theories, um, that that makes sense within that model, but if you move to this model, then the, those theories don't really make sense anymore, or, or those those treatments don't really make sense anymore in this newer model. And so right. it it would adjust how you go about treating things, and that's that's a huge discrepancy with the entire system set up around this older model. 
which has been understood to not really be correct over time. And I want to point out here that in science, you never prove something to be true. You mm-hmm. just prove all the other things to be false. And so you, you're yeah, basically yeah, you rejecting. Fal- yeah, you falsified. Yeah, yeah. You want to reject the null hypothesis. Yeah. But the thing is, is with this with the older theories, that hypothesis has already been rejected. There's already a, a lot of evidence that is contradictory to this current that basically forces you to throw out the, the current idea, particularly in regards to the how high blood pressure specifically works to, to some extent, and then also with cholesterol and vascular damage over time. So there's there's and that's where you start seeing these new theories involving adequate vitamin C consumption and then polyunsaturated fatty acids and then easy water and exclusion zones and then the pump working the heart working not as a pump and things like that. You start to see changes in these theories and I think these are the at least from my reading and my understanding these are the theories that I think are going to start to come forward in the future as being what and being accepted as oh this is what's actually going on and again over time new theories or adjustments or developments of these theories will also unfold. And so our understanding is going to constantly develop over time as well. And it's about following them and and keeping up with them and keeping up with the understanding and whatnot. Yeah. And I want to point out also, as far as the heart not being a pump and the easy water being responsible for blood flow, those things are, they are relevant, but a lot of what we'll talk about, what we'll be talking about and pretty much everything we have talked about still stands even if those things weren't the case even if the heart was a pump and the exclusion zone had little to do with blood flow uh there's still a lot of things virtually everything else that we talked about still is entirely still stands as it is so uh there are certain things that are uh that it will that it does affect but it's more of a mechanism of explanation rather than support for what we're saying well the thing is i I think it's important though because I think the easy, the idea of the easy water and then of charge starts to change the idea. And we haven't really gotten into this yet, but the idea that the cells aren't just little packets surrounded by a fatty envelope, but that they're actually a, a water in a certain structure interacting with different proteins and that they're not just these little, these little individual components, but that they're actually all interconnected and they're water in a particular state running on an energetic apparatus and the easy yeah. water directly directly involves that and right. i think when you start to see that it'll start to branch out because the idea everything that we're coming from is from this idea of metabolism and then when you start talking about streaming of energy through the mitochondria and oxidative respiration and things like that then you have to move in to start talking about and and then the same thing with electrolytes like maintaining potassium inside the cell and magnesium inside the cell and sodium outside the cell all these things function on Part, and very specifically on a state of water and interaction with electrolytes and making sure that you're streaming energy constantly and things like that. And I think the easy water is a great gateway into all of that. And people starting to accept that, wow, maybe it's not just these little individual fatty packet, fatty packets or watery packets surrounded by a fatty envelope and things like that. I know it's not relevant for a lot of people in the audience unless you're more interested in like a deeper dive into like the general cellular biology or the generally accepted ideas that we currently function on now. But as far as understanding things and the processes going forward, it's important to eventually get, get into that or uh, if you, if you're interested. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a very important foundational concept that is relevant in that big picture. In turn, I, all I was trying to more say, which I know you weren't disagreeing with was just in terms yeah. of what we said, as far as hypertension goes, 
it doesn't depend on that being true for these other things that we said to be valid. So, um, but yeah, I agree. It is a very relevant point, and I do think that it's there's a lot of value in discussing the heart not being a pump and and the exclusion zone working. And so, just to clarify that as well, basically, you just in simple terms, the lining of the blood vessels is, are producing energy, and that energy ca- creates a charge. It creates a negative charge with a positive charge on the outside, and the blood that's being pumped not pumped to the blood that's being vortexed in the heart has a has a charge which would be a positive charge and so that is then being sent through the blood vessels and because it's being repelled uh basically that allows it to flow through the arteries in a way that doesn't require the physical force from a pump to work and instead it works in a much more uh i don't know a mechanism that makes a lot more sense and is uh, directly compatible with what actually exists in our vasculature and why this is so important is that when we have energy breakdown in the vasculature anywhere but especially in the vasculature you then have reduced blood flow and reduced circulation and as you mentioned you're then that exclusion zone protects the endothelium and protects the blood vessels and so when you don't have that exclusion zone uh, you don't have that structured water around the cell because it's not producing energy there's some sort of defect or dysfunction there then it's susceptible to damage, as you as you mentioned, and that is what leads to that whole process of atherosclerosis and plaque buildup and, and on from there. And then damage to the collagen network as well right. also right. interrupts. Yeah. So it goes, it, it it's not w- just one unidirectional, it can go in both ways. And then yeah. the other piece that I think is really important that I didn't really touch upon, but in going in the idea with energy metabolism, in order to have adequate blood flow to tissues, you need to have adequate energy metabolism because of something called the Bohr effect. And I think we've touched upon this at one point in time, but essentially with pr- adequate energy metabolism, CO2 is produced and CO2 causes number one vasodilation, which allows blood flow to the tissue or the organ, whatever it is. But at the same time, it, it also allows hemoglobin, which is what the blood is carrying oxygen with the, the, the protein within red blood cells that is carrying the oxygen to let go of the oxygen to the tissue, you need to have CO2. So if you don't, so even if your blood flow is great and your vas- vessels aren't destroyed or, or have atherosclerosis or whatever it is, if you don't have enough energy supply on board, if your cells don't have enough energy to function, you can you won't be able to have proper circulation because you won't be producing adequate CO2. And even if your circulation was proper and it was reaching all the tissues, if you don't have enough CO2 production, you can't unload oxygen to the tissue. So you need to have proper energy metabolism. You need to be producing CO2. And that's directly important to the system as well. I mean, so there's there's multiple, as we said, there's multiple synergistic uh, factors working together in this extremely i guess webbed system and if you were to like draw it out it'd be like a huge web of all these factors working on each other and they they need to work together so it's important to address all the factors you can't just take one drug and adjust your blood pressure to some to some arbitrary adjusted or some average range that's been generally accepted and then think that now you your situation is solved I mean, you need to make sure that you're having proper energy production, which means proper CO2 production at the the cellular level. And you need to make sure that your vasculature is in good shape and which is dependent upon diet and that 
your um that you have adequate electrolytes and things like that so you're not running on stress pathways so that everything can function appropriately so there's and the thing is is it's a huge interweb system and there's a lot going on but the factors to address it are largely focused on lifestyle which is wonderful which is great that a lot of the factors can be adjusted by lifestyle and i mean it makes sense because our if you consider the machines that are our bodies were developed within this in specific environment and so like a the idea of, okay, so we need to adjust our environmental factors so that things function the right way because they, the machines, uh, machines. In quotes. In for quotes. For people who aren't watching. Yeah. Yeah. The machine, I'm making quotes with my fingers. <laughs> the machines de- developed in this environment, so they're suited for this environment. So getting back to an environment to some extent, and that includes diet, that includes stress, that includes light exposure, that includes movement, that includes relationships, etc. Um, all of, all Basically, if you can adjust those, then you can essentially adjust the physiology and the functioning of the machine in, again, in quotes. <laughs> yeah. And the reason that's in quotes is because our bodies are definitely... It's not a machine, yeah. <laughs> yeah, not machines. The yeah. idea of us as computers or machines is... I know that everybody likes to say that, but I don't think it's really an apt uh, analogy. I think it's a really terrible analogy and leads to a <laughs> yeah. lot of problems, like the idea that we should be eating less sodium to lower our blood pressure and so in talking about like to to kind of sum up and and backtrack and look at these uh, these couple of main things that lead to these this blood pressure problem basically activate the stress system we have this mineral imbalance this lack of sodium or also a lack of potassium magnesium calcium excess water and then we also have this lack of energy production we talked about the effects as far as blood flow goes as far as this the exclusion zone and how that is really what seems like the main factor driving blood flow throughout the body, which basically means that if you aren't producing enough energy at any point, you're inhibiting circulation and then you would need a, an increase in blood pressure to uh, make up for that. The And then you had mentioned those other components as far as carbon dioxide. So carbon dioxide is produced when we produce energy, especially when we're doing it from carbohydrates, which is kind of like the highest level of, of doing so. And That carbon dioxide does a couple of things. One, it is the primary vasodilator in our bodies, meaning that it leads to the blood vessel relaxation. And this, you know, keeps our blood pressure adequate as opposed to constriction, which increases it. Uh, And then the other thing is that CO2 increases oxygenation by binding with hemoglobin, which is the carrier of oxygen that drops oxygen off. It it allows basically the cells to get oxygen. So, uh, and so... The reason why that oxygenation part is important is that that's another reason why we might have to increase blood pressures. If we're not getting enough oxygenation, that's kind of a backup mechanism to, to force that. So yes. this, this is why we talked about mineral balance, but then energy production is such a huge component when it comes to avoiding high blood pressure. And that, that's kind of the basic mechanisms there. Yeah. All right. I hope you enjoyed part one of our two-part series discussing blood pressure regulation I did want to make a couple of clarifications from a couple of things that were mentioned throughout today's episode. So one was in regard to structured water, where I mentioned uh, the structured water being made up of three hydrogens and one oxygen, uh, but I actually misspoke there, and I meant to say three hydrogens and two oxygens. And then as far as the blood vessel length, I was I mentioned that you know something about the surface area and taking up. A certain amount of space, basketball court or football field. And I don't remember where I had gotten that idea from, but I'm sure there's something like that. But what I was actually uh, thinking about at that time was uh, the figure that if you laid 
out all of the blood vessels in our body in a line that they would be 60,000 miles long, which would go around the earth more than two times. So uh, that was in regard to whether the one pound muscle of our heart would be able to actually pump blood throughout that entire system, which of course there are, you know, even throughout the conventional view, there are other acknowledged mechanisms that contribute to some amount of that blood circulation. But for the most part, the, the heart is meant to be doing the vast majority of it. So, uh, you know, and, and so that's why we discuss some of those alternate views as far as that goes. In part two of this series, we'll be discussing some of the underlying causes of high blood pressure and whether the blood pressure drugs effectively address these causes. We'll also discuss some of the details of the physiology of what goes on in a dysfunctional vascular system, and we'll be talking about some of the main components there of that process, which would include swelling and edema, fibrosis, and calcification, and we'll explain all of that in a little more detail. And then we'll finish off by discussing what we can do as far as nutrition and supplementation and other lifestyle factors go for those of you who do have hypertension or are concerned about other risk factors as far as heart disease goes. If you did enjoy today's episode, please leave a review or a like or a comment or a five-star rating on iTunes. It really does a lot to help support the show. To check out the show notes for today's episode, you can head over to jfeldmanwellness.com slash podcast, where I'll be linking to all of the things that we discussed throughout today's episode. And then if you are dealing with hypertension or other blood pressure issues, or you're concerned about other heart disease risk factors, or you're dealing with a low, uh, low metabolic function, or gut symptoms, or chronic joint pain, or hunger and fatigue, or hormonal imbalances, head over to jfeldmanwellness.com energy, where you can sign up for a free energy balance mini course, where I'll walk you through some of the main things that you want to focus on as far as nutrition and lifestyle are concerned in order to maximize your cellular energy availability. And I'll also explain why that is really the key to resolving all of these uh, low energy symptoms and chronic health conditions. So to sign up for that free energy balance mini course, head over to jfeldmanwellness.com energy, and I will see you in the next episode.